0: Compliance is a profession where people work tirelessly to make the world a better place. And there are hundreds of amazing and inspiring women who have helped the field develop into what it is today. Great Women in Compliance is part of the Compliance Podcast Network, so join Mary Shirley and Lisa Fine as they talk with women in compliance who are making a difference. You're listening to Great Women in Compliance on the Compliance Podcast Network with Mary Shirley and Lisa Fine. Today I'm so excited to speak with Jenny Kim, who is the Deputy General Counsel and Vice President of Public Policy at Coke Companies Public Sector. In her role, Jenny supervises the political law and technology compliance team with a focus on ensuring the continued development, implementation, and monitoring of government ethics lobbying and campaign finances. See, I told you. <laughs> I'm gonna start over. I always know. Hi, Tom, we're consistent. <laughs> so I'm gonna start again. Hi, you're listening to the Great Women Compliance Podcast on the Compliance Podcast Network with Mary Shirley and Lisa Fine. Today, I'm really excited to speak with Jenny Kim. Jenny is the Deputy General Counsel and Vice President Public Policy at Coke Company's Public Sector. In her role, Jenny supervises the political law and technology compliance team with a focus on ensuring the continued development, implementation, and monitoring of government ethics, lobbying, and campaign finance policies as applied against US federal, state and local, Canada and the European Union. She has been at Koch for over a decade, evolving in her role and constantly seeking new challenges. Before joining Coke, Jenny was an associate at two DC-based law firms and served as a presidential management fellow at the Missile Defense Agency and at the White House Office of Counsel to the President. This is really interesting to me because even though I live in DC, I have yet to have a conversation on the podcast with somebody who works in areas that touch so specifically lobbying and political ethics and campaign finance. One day at a boxing class, when we still had fitness classes, I saw a friend who suggested I speak with Jenny and some other great women. And I spoke with Jenny first, and I found her perspective in both the ethics and compliance space and in the public policy area to be one to share. So Jenny, thank you for joining me. And Kevin, Kevin Mousley, thank you for introducing us. So with that, Jenny, let's start a bit with your background. How did you get into compliance and how did you end up in your role? Uh, Lisa, thank
1: you so much for this opportunity, and of course, our matchmaker Kevin Mosley. Thank you to you as well. Um, so, getting into compliance was sort of a complete accident because what I had learned in law school, I'm not practicing any of that right now. So, <laughs> when I graduated Boston College Law School, I came down immediately to DC, and I started on the Presidential Management Fellowship program, and. Back then, I started at the Missile Defense Agency, which there I learned about systems and appropriations and government contracts laws, um, and I really liked missiles and guns and tanks. So that's why I applied to the Missile Defense Agency. Um, But the thing that really struck me there was the complexity of systems and how, whether you believe in missile defense or, or not, how the sort of there's this time period where you have the beginning of the missile when it goes up that point at mid-course when it's at in the middle of the range and then terminal near the end. And each stage as a missile launches against you, you only have a finite amount of time to defend and you only have certain tools at each stage to defend against it as well. And compliance is a little bit sort of the same way. So I started there, then I headed over to my second um, rotation to the White House um, Office of Counsel to the President in the Ethics Division, where I learned very quickly that learning how to accurately fill out and submit lots of publicly financially disclosed forms and assess what a gift is and the permissibility of government officials accepting them and reviewing those forms and then connecting random bits and pieces of information to make rapid assessments because you would never have perfect information or perfect solutions. Um, Time was a luxury you didn't have in the council's office, frankly, and probably is true of corporate America as well, um, was all important and that the appearance is equally as important as the reality. Or as the legend of Liberty Valance, the old movie with John Wayne and um, Jamie Stewart was in there, the quote that the journalist said about when the legend becomes a fact, you print the legend and not the fact. And then, so I learned sort of the basics of compliance there, of sort of the intersection of um, media and the law and communications. And then I kind of took more of the traditional route after that and went to two uh, D.C. law firms, Crowell and Mooring, and Miller and Chevalier, where I got to be colleagues with Kevin Mosley for a couple of years. And then I had a friend pass my resume on to Coke, and then I applied, and then here I am 12 years later. Um, so that's how I got started when the Jack Abramoff um, scandal had broken out, and Hologa, the Honest Leadership and Open Government Act of 2008, had passed back in 2008, And so there's this whole era of like everything was going to be transparent. Everybody would know about everything. All the systems were changed. And then um, since then, like with the federal government going that direction, then the states proliferated their own rules. um, And that's how that happened, which then got me wondering, like, what are the point of all these laws? What are we trying to achieve with all these laws? And then at the same time, within six months of getting there, I got a sort of a semi-legal reform, public policy, criminal justice reform portfolio as well. And then that caused me to sort of serve on the boards of the Due Process Institute, um, also Public Leadership uh, Education Network, and um, recently the Presidential Management Alumni Association because I am a, pres- a former Presidential Management Fellow.
0: That's that's great, and I definitely think I mean no matter where you are, the definition of gifts, hospitality, yeah. um, you know, whether it's with a government official. In, in my world, um, one of the things I learned when I started at Pearson is that that professors are very often public officials. So how do you handle that? How do you do it? So it really is everywhere, something that we're all you know, dealing with on our day-to-day world. And, you know, and it's still out there right now, although we're, as we've now gone into a COVID world, there are a lot, fewer, lot less hospitality or gifts going on. But I think one of the things that was interesting about COVID and just generally, um, you know, you all have been on the front lines of a lot of it, but what, um, what do you think is important to think about right now and to plan for later in this COVID and post-COVID era?
1: I think in this COVID area, I think, you know, it's, it's the, the things to keep compliance moving in the right direction. It's things that are not necessarily um, all legally related, but also human related. So it's making sure that you touch points with your teammates and not your teammates too. And then really in a moment of crisis, right, people tend to hunker down to what they know and just go to the chant. Channels and pipelines that they know. I think this is an opportunity to really understand what else is there inside your company, outside of your company. What are sort of the macroeconomics, the microeconomics going on? Because there's so much going on right now that it's literally trying to drink from a fire hose. And it's also figuring out who sort of has rapid translation of all this data that is coming in. So there's Hunton and Williams is tracking every single uh, piece of litigation that's going on in COVID. Um, but it's really not losing touch with other sources of information, and don't expect Google to tell you everything or the news sources to tell you everything. But also to keep in touch with other people, and to expand, take this opportunity to expand your networks. Because literally, as a compliance person, you you have to connect the information that is static, the information that is changing but also know who is sort of on the precipice of certain pieces of information and connect that all together because that moment of reaction when you can react to something is pretty limited. That window's closed. That closes pretty quickly. And so in the current COVID world, it's just to take a very measured, calm approach. Also understand that you know we, compliance takes years to develop all these different tools and systems and we constantly test and assess. But right now when we're reacting to the needs of our um Clients and consumers, where you don't have that much time, we're going to have to make some decisions with not so perfect information, and then we're going to have to constantly evolve and assess. Um, I usually say it's kind of like a diet and exercise plan, right? You like you want to lose twenty pounds at the beginning of the year, healthily in a very healthy way. Then you often, you know, do it very deliberately. You do piece by piece. But hey, if you have to lose like eight pounds in the next like eight days because you have to fit into that outfit then you're gonna may you may use the beyonce way from dream girls not healthy um, <laughs> but you know vinegar and you know um, vinegar and um, cayenne pepper and you know you, you drink that stuff and you you know you, you lose the weight you fit into your outfit like what are your goals in the short term and the long term and i think this is going to be a marathon right regardless of whether a new vaccine allegedly pops out every day and so i think that's what we have to keep in mind in covid is that We've got to figure out, do we have to create new systems that enable our clients to be able to live their lives, their sort of new normal, and also mitigate risks for the company and for other employees and for that individual as well? Because as one of my colleagues at work, um, Marty Quidar, often says, like, Compliance is basically, you're trying to make it up on a down escalator. <laughs> and I remember trying to do that when I was a kid. I'm not going to try to do that now, but it's hard, right? <laughs> you went down yeah. the wrong way and you're trying to come back up, especially when your parents are like, what are you doing? Where are you going? We're going to lose you in this mall, Um it, it's, there's this moment of panic and that's what happens. And, you know, we've got, especially in this, in this period with COVID, we've got to make sure everyone's as calm as possible, thinking things through, knowing
0: that legal and compliance are
1: your best partners rather than someone you have to go to, to get a check mark on a piece of paper.
0: Yeah. I mean, and I think that generally in most ethics and compliance programs, that is, you know, something that where, you know, the check the box approach doesn't work to begin with anymore. And, you know, a valid towards, you know, how to, you know, have a system design um, risk mitigation as a whole. So, but to just say we did it, we trained everybody, they know we're good is not really what, you know, is going to work as well. But I do know that a big part of what you guys have going on right now is risk mitigation. So that is a key issue for you right now, correct?
1: That is correct. I mean, it's all about, I think, I mean, even for your company, Lisa, I think everyone is at risk mitigation point. And this morning i had I heard a very interesting economic uh, discussion um, by Dambiza uh, Moyo, and she is on the board of you know three m and Chevron and she's an international economist. but factoring in what you know she was saying is that you know history and context are important, so many things are changing. I mean she grew up you know um, in the middle of a coup uh, in Africa, and so she had to run away and you know she's always of the mindset you always have to prepare for the worst and I think this whole COVID experience, right? You have to mitigate risk. You sort of have to prepare for the worst, but it's also thinking about system design. And, you know, like I said, I can't draw a straight line with a ruler. So I'm probably the last person that anyone would hire to do true design work. But I just finished reading the book, um, Atomic Habits by James Clear. And it's really, you know, compliance and legal is really about trying to get people to change their habits or or do habit stacking, which is incorporate um, compliance habits into what they normally do in their a normal world because you know we need to understand that you know our clients can't change everything all at once. I mean, frankly, I can't change everything all at once. Like good luck with that. Um, which is why I've never been able to remove all sugar from my diet. That's just not gonna work. Um and it's the same thing with our clients and we sort of have to figure that out. I think in this other thing we, we've noticed with other um folks that we work with in this new COVID world is that um you know people are kind of looking like the Wall Street Journal article a couple of weeks ago wrote out um, everyone's stepping up, well, does everyone stepping up mean also that compliance has to make decisions and trade-offs very quickly without, you know, complete knowledge? And that's not a normal area of comfort for us, because we're used to years and years of, like, thinking about things, drawing things out, constantly designing, um, and yet, you know, we're all going to have to sort of figure out, you know, how do, we, how do we do this in the most effective way, risk mitigation way, and move quickly so that business decisions um, can be made. And I think what the, the other thing that we're seeing in all of this is that, you know, how many, how many laws are we all um, regulated by? I'm always amazed um, by little facts that I learn every day, especially around um, the criminal law and the civil law sectors. And um, there's this great book called How to Become a Federal Criminal. It's fully illustrated by Mike Chase. And he also has a Twitter handle called Crime A Day, that you know, he tweets out one federal crime a day, and you would be amazed, I was amazed, when some of the crimes that he's tweeting out, he's done it for the last five years, one federal crime a day, including the days that his wife went into labor. I'm surprised that she hasn't um, done away with him yet. But um, he said if Congress creates no many, um, Congress does not stop creating any more crimes or penalties, it's gonna take him another 795 years to tweet all of them out. So, you know. Yeah. Um And it's really figuring out also during this period, like, what have we been comfortable operating with in suspended mode? Do we really need it, right? Um Marie Kondo says, if it doesn't bring you joy, toss it out. Like, really think about, you know, what do we have, our legal systems, our regulatory systems, um, you know, for how do we make them better? How do we change culture? How do we change structure? How do we make our programs better? Because uh, Lisa, like you said, it's not just train and forget it, right? It's a constant iteration, right? Just because you mm-hmm. forgot to eat five vegetable servings a day doesn't mean you get up, you jump off the bandwagon and decide you're, you're done. You just have to keep on plowing on through and trying to, you know, figure out what works, what doesn't work and constantly redo. I mean, there's a reason that, you know, fashion changes and, you know, trends change. And, you know, it's the same thing with compliance. How, how our clients consume information and how they learn Um, is really an important factor. And I mean, we recently uh, used the Tiger King to teach, you know, the basics of political law because it seemed like that's how, and people paid attention. Like that was the amazing thing. Yeah, they totally paid attention.
0: Yeah, it's funny as you talk about Marie Kondo and and decluttering or what sparks joy, I I started immediately thinking again about like my dishwasher, which has been on very frequent use during COVID because I needed a lot more at home. So it's a question of, it doesn't spark joy, but it'd be a lot worse if I didn't have it. So yes. figuring out that part is an interesting component of it as well. You know, what, is, what, what do we need? What is, what is good to have and what may become obsolete are always, you know, important topics, you know, particularly going forward and, and to think about it with, you know, ethics and compliance as a whole because the, you know, the whole way we do our work and to make sure we stay effective is to, to evolve and grow. Uh Yeah,
1: because we want our repeat customers coming back to us right we want them to use us as a resource and to be part of it and we are part of the system it's that i think sometimes people don't necessarily see that in the big picture
0: yeah and that we're part of the business function not just i mean and that's part of the evolution of the from becoming the the sheriff to the person at the table who's explaining risks and working through it yeah and, you know, with, during this time, what about technology? Are you all using more technology or, you know, how's it leveraging it?
1: Technology has definitely been um, more of a use, but technology is a tool, right? And I think we need to be careful not to see that as the answer. It can help us get to better trade-offs, better solutions, but it's not the answer. And so, for example, we've used a lot more video conferencing. We've, um, you know, spoken with people um, and have daily stand-up to keep the sort of team all together and discuss things uh, that way and have check-ins twice a day. Um, So those are things we use technology for. But we've also sort of, um, we already have a platform called Principle 2 that we have that was created to do a real-time central uh, collection of data around anything of value and aggregation and also to deal with our lobbying reports and collect non-deductible time. Um, And then, you you know, you really have to be nimble with those data sets and know how to use Excel um, and all those different kind of programs. But it's really just, you know, thinking through how can you make technology part of the solution so that there are fewer touch points for error to occur. Um, because oftentimes, you know, when you have processes to be very manual, that's when certain errors ca- can occur. And so make it kind of smooth. But also remember that you don't want to set it and forget it. Because I think, you know, Lisa, we've saw, seen all the news articles about how the governors for a while for COBOL programmers because all their unemployment systems were based on COBOL and nobody knew how to you know, fix them so that <laughs> they could take on the additional unemployment um, claim capacity. And that's, that's something dangerous too. So wh- whatever works, that's great. But you also have to know when it's time to move on to a different infrastructure um, as well and kind of keep that in mind when you're designing a system. And so designing technology and systems to think like four or five years ahead at least and then also think about um, open source, too, so that it can be easily sort of converted into something else, um, should the need be if the language or the uh, people who are conversant in that particular uh, programming language are not around, because you want those systems to constantly evolve.
0: Yeah. Now, let's talk a little bit outside of the COVID days, because we do have this presidential election coming up, and I want to take advantage of having you here to talk about pay-to-play and you know some of the political components of compliance right now. So...
1: Yeah, no, it is presidential election, which means most every state are are having their elections. So there's going to be a lot of elections going on this year. Um, And, you know, we've already started looking at our programs and seeing, you know, what what do our compliance directors need to know about? What do our um, key consumers need to know about? And you have to really determine whether they're still aligned with the ever-changing laws and policies and administrative orders that are going on in all 50 states. And even like watch things carefully federally, even though the Federal Election Commission Um, basically has been unable to decide on anything um, because of uh, the differences amongst the commissioners, but you still have to um, look at that as well. And so you would have to collaborate closely with your corporate um, political director and the government affairs team to figure out their objectives for the year and to figure out how to achieve those objectives um, uh, legally. And then also consider the PR implications too, and then bring in um, the comms department as well. And then you have to be really nimble with the data sets because most of this data is going to be publicly available. You have all the, you know, different groups already looking at you, especially the, the groups that don't like you and um, everything, you know, everything just has to be very easily sort of, def- you know, defensible and factual. And so you have to look at that too. And then a reminder of do's and don'ts about training. Um, Cause you, what you really want to avoid as you go through an election year is all the unforced errors as they would call in a tennis match. Um, you know, you want to make sure that, you know, your, your program's as airtight as possible and that when you discover something that you um, can rectify it as quickly as possible. But Lisa, as you know, the enormity of pay-to-play laws, um, which are laws that basically prohibit or limit peop- um, companies and executives' abilities to give to, and their families, to give political contributions if they have a government contract or potentially have given a gift to any government official who may be deciding on government contracts, um, those laws are very complex simply because every jurisdiction, county, or state wants to do it very differently. Um, and so you really have to figure out like, who your target audience is and then figure out which jurisdictions um, are the target business states and then figure out which executives and their family members you need to educate and ask about delicately. Um, and then, oh, it's difficult because you have yeah. family
0: involved. Oh, yeah. It's not just the people no. that you're talking to day to day. And. No even sophisticated leaders are sometimes surprised about that as well, especially if it's not something that they are even really thinking about. So No, and
1: most of the time, if you get to a certain point in um, leadership, you have a lot of friends who are all deciding that they want to run for office. And that's how usually sometimes, you know, those things happen. And to keep them vigilant about it, you know, is a, is, is a tough thing. And, you know, Uh, Nobody wants to have this discussion with their spouse, I can tell you that.
0: (laughs) And this is the time where you really need to use good technology and continue to do that, as well as work with legal and compliance.
1: Yes, absolutely. And then I think you need to also emphasize and educate about the actual consequences that have happened to other companies and executives, Um, the loss of government contracts, suspension, debarment, civil and criminal penalties, um, to make it less theoretical Cause I think there's a tendency sometimes to think that legal and compliance bring theoretical sort of consequences. But the reality is, is that um, there are, there have been a number of um, instances where, you know, companies and, and, or the executives have gotten into hot water because the pay to play laws were not um, thought of or complied with. And in most situations, these things are strict liability, right? There is no knowing and willful um, at all. It's like, oops, you made a mistake. Um, you're going to have to just pay for it. And unfortunately, sometimes, especially in New Jersey and Illinois, oftentimes it seems to be with the business that they just won.
0: Yeah. And reputationally, nobody wants to be that person. No, (laughs) no. So, you know, you've obviously done a tremendous amount since your first couple of roles and you're coming from, you know, your white house job. If you were able to go to to Jenny on your first day um, at Coke, coming from the law firm, your first day in, in the corporate world, what would, what would you tell yourself now that you, uh, you
1: know, you wish you knew then? Um, I have a lot of things that I would want to tell myself that I wish um, I knew then. The first thing is, I'm glad you brought up boxing classes because literally there um, they're, um the, the, the former general counsel of Coke Industries, Mark Holden, uh, mm-hmm. used to saw a quote on my door um, from General um, von Clausewitz of um, Germany about how, you know, every plan ends up being destroyed once it hits, you know, reality. And he, And then he told me, And Mike Tyson said, "Everyone has a plan until they're punched in the mouth." Right? (laughs) Mike Tyson is a famous boxer, and to put in very simple terms, that's so. That's the first thing I would because I I I remember on my first day, I had all these aspirations, I had all these plans. um, I was going to do this, this, and this, and then um, Kenny Rogers, country musician who recently passed away, the song from The Gambler, um, "No One to (laughs) Hold Him, No One to Fold Him," um, you know, no one to um, walk, no one to run. Um, yeah, that's, those are like the two sort of big principles I would want to tell myself because I think, you know, back then coming from a law firm, and this is traditional coming from most law firms, is that you think everyone's going to read your, you know, legal memo that you slaved over, you, you know, didn't even sleep at night for, and then you realize in the business cycle, they just want to know, like, can I do it or can I do it? And if I can't do it this way, can I do it that way? Um, they don't care about all of the, you know, footnotes and double spacing and no, 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 that's not... Can we do it or can we not do it? How do we structure it? You know, how do we uh, make sure future generations know that we can do it this way, that the law change in the meanwhile? You know, that's what they want to know. They also don't want to know the in-depth of the law. They want to know how to recognize what to look for in terms of minefields, most of your um, business, you know, partners and what the key political, you know, risks are. And so we've had more success with people sitting through a 10-minute knowledge share than doing a a formal two-hour training because- most people can't sit still. It's hard to go through the phones. Um, and I just saw a Wall Street Journal article that animation watching has grown 20% over this quarantine period. So you know we've used animation on anything of value and recruiting US government employees, um, the former which won an award at um, some you know, uh, corporate um, event um, because that seemed to get people to at least be situated and to know what to look for instead of just trying to kind of go through the huge verbiage wall of words I see whenever you put up a PowerPoint slide with all the regulations. And that also helped us develop like workflows that people can use to do more self-service tools. Um, I think that 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 is one of the things that I wish I could have told Jenny on our first day is like, hey, no one's going to listen to you. uh, So figure out how to make people. Understand these are the, the sig- three signals you need to pay attention to, right? There must be a reason that we only have red, yellow, and green lights, right? If we made it any more than that, I don't think people would pay attention.
0: No, I always laugh because I think of, I would like to tell Lisa on her first day at a law firm because I remember when I would work on things coming from organizations and think, how could this possibly have happened? And then once you get it in an organization, you realize, you know, people are making real-time decisions, people are fallible, something may go wrong, this and that, and you're like, you know what, once it goes really wrong, that's when you have the, when you have to reach to, you know, reach out to outside counsel, you know, and you you realize all of the, you know, different human aspects, whereas when you're looking at as a fact pattern as a first-year associate, all you can see is it is a legal thing. Yes. Um, Oh, how could
1: they have done that? Yeah, no, (laughs) Uh, um, but you, you, and this is where, like the comp- compounding of habits that James Clear in Atomic Habits talks about, is that you know compounding bad habits can lead to a major catastrophe. But how do you convince and persuade people to compound good habits? How are small design changes going to contribute to that? Um, and that's something that you know in in law school, in law firms, you don't necessarily understand or see. Um, and you know, it's just it's just hard. But that's where I think building internal and external networks. In understanding the connective tissue amongst all the different elements, right? Macroeconomics, economics, behavioral psychology, um, you know, understanding how people think and learn and absorb information, what else is built into their lives that you may not see on the surface, um, and trying to help them understand why this is important and how to sort of fit it in. Um, It's sort of like using technology to be able to build as many couture outfits as possible, um, because everybody sort of has a different mindset um, and different needs when it comes to sort of trying to absorb this information. And you've got to get to yes, right? And you've got to get them to buy in. And it's figuring out what incentive structures are there for that person to be able to buy in. Um, and it's really paying attention to people. I think that's the thing I learned the most, like that nobody told me about, is you have to really pay attention to all the small details about people yeah. um, and what they, what they care about, what they don't care about. Um, what they don't know that they want but seem to voice their want and how they're acting so it's like I don't know if you you had these activities in primary school where it's like your teacher's pointing to her ear but she's actually saying point to your nose and you're like which one am I supposed to do <laughs> um, and it's it's that sometimes the mixed signals you get from your clients because you're just like okay what is it you want me to do and oftentimes they just want some sort of mm-hmm proposed solution so they can say yay or nay but they're not going to actually think all of that through which then comes back to what I call the Amelia Bedelia problem right everybody uses the same words everybody means a different thing everybody leaves the meeting feeling like psyched and then they realize like everyone wants to do something totally different but wait a minute you said you want to do this but yes I do want to do this but I meant this and and then you realize like a uh everyone needed to level set on vocabulary in the first place
0: Exactly. So one last thing I wanted to, to make sure that we talked about, because you've had such a strong internal and, and external networks in terms of growing the people that you know. Can you talk a little bit about your experience in, in those areas as well, um, you know, and how that's really helped you build your current career as well as, you know, your external activities that you really care about?
1: So, you know, I think a lot of things, um, I run a lot of random experiments um, and then I fully expect most of them to fail. Mm-hmm. And I also, um, I know this is a new concept that's coming out there, but I also look for reverse mentors. So okay. folks who are junior and less experienced in a lot of the more traditional ways than I am, but mm-hmm. know a lot more about technology than I do and know a lot more about Vizio than I do. <laughs> um, so, you know, I, I listen to them. I try to take to them because, um, Lisa about At my four-year, five-year point at Coke, I had this experience where I had one of um, my direct reports come into my office, shut the door. We had another employee who was leaving. And I remember this. This was the afternoon, and he shut the door. And he was totally against a a personnel sort of route I wanted to go um, for backfill. And it took him a lot of courage to come to me, number one. Um, Number two, I had always said, like, you know, you need to provide me feedback. So I sat on my hands and I I tried very hard not to respond and just listen. And this is in the afternoon. This happened in the afternoon when my energy level is probably the lowest, mm-hmm. uh, but I forced myself to listen. And that was sort of a turning point for me um, because I realized that what I thought and how things got interpreted were two different things. And so I need to constantly check because each sort of age group and experience group brings a different sort of, um, understanding to situations. Um, and so that's when I realized, like, I can't just look to the, um, the sort of more, um, senior generations. I've got to look to the generations that are coming after too, and to really sort of make sure that I understand what they want, what they think they want and what they think they need. Um, because otherwise I would be m- probably making a lot of unforced errors and, and losing their buy-in. Even though they said I bought in, they don't really mean I bought in because they've just decided that you're going to give up. So that was, that was like the sort of pivotal moment of trying to find reverse mentors and to make sure my network, both internally and externally, were sort of evenly spread between very senior people, peers, and um, more junior people.
0: Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. I also think sometimes looking even outside of that in, you know, atypical areas. I mean, sometimes, I mean, we talked about, you know, fitness classes or different yeah. things that I'll do. One thing I, I often try to do is look at, you know, how is this person trying to captivate a group of people in the room? Mm-hmm. Some may be much younger, some may be older, but like just looking at how different people do different things Yes. Um, like that, like how do you, how are you dynamic? How do you listen to? the language of the different people around you and how do you respond? I mean, I think that that is a skill that people don't think about, especially women earlier in your career, because you're trying to figure out what the people that are more senior to you are doing without thinking about, look what I can be learning and what I'm bringing to that table. So I absolutely agree. Reverse mentors are just really important.
1: No. And they, and they also give you a certain um, freedom because they did not come with certain baggage that you came with because you came from that generation um and insecurity so it's 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 a it's a really it's a really positive thing um now i'm not all for like listening to every single discussion about the bachelor because i'm not really into reality (laughs) tv um or kim kardashian um no offense to the kim kardashian fans out there you're fully this is why it's a great country because everyone is you know free to love what they love um but at the same time it's also good to listen to pockets of it, because to me, I'm subconsciously digesting how they're thinking about things. I me mean, like, ah, so the, the traditional reading and reading and memorizing the law method's not going to work with these people. I've got to figure out how to sort of incorporate some of pop culture into it so that they will actually pay attention and absorb it.
0: Yeah. No, that's great. I mean, I really appreciate you taking all taking the time to join me. We have really wanted to have lunch or coffee. I cannot wait on so many levels until we- Oh, yes, to I'm excited. To build that, you know, continue doing that. And, you know, I just appreciate very much taking the time, especially during this unprecedented time. Um, and with that, um, this is Lisa Fine um, signing off for the Great Women in Compliance podcast on the Compliance Podcast Network. I hope everybody is staying safe and healthy and having a good day.